Happy Resurrection Sunday. My name is Peter, and I know it's not Easter anymore, but listen, every Lord's Day and every day we are to celebrate the truth that Jesus is alive forever. Now, I just fixed my watch this morning, and it turns out it's still forever. So here we go. I want to just say what a wonderful time on Facebook Live of prayer together, of worship through song. Uh, now, as we go to worship, the high worship of listening to God's word, before we get to that, I, I just want to point out that everything we do as a church, you can find on a simple link on our homepage, thespringstx.org. Whether it's our Zoom prayer calls, uh, our our things that we do throughout the week, our giving, storehouse, food pantry, other helps, or any questions, you can go there. Now, today, I'm going to get us into week two of our preaching series on discipleship. Last week, Alberto started off our series preaching about the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ to discipleship, to being a disciple. Jesus doesn't call us to just be simply church attenders or Insta fans, but disciples. And yet, too often, we tend to plaster our own meaning over words like disciple, right over the true meaning. And so if you want some of the richest first century context for what it means to receive the calling to be a disciple, go and listen to Alberto's message from last week. It's probably one of the first suggested videos down there. And in all of this, may you hear with new ears that God gives you the invitation to the most joyous life you can ever imagine. In fact, it's beyond your imagination, the life that Jesus calls you to. So necessarily, it's also a little bit different than your plans that you had before this pandemic. Am I right? And before we can fully realize what that life is really like and walk in it and be commissioned unto it, which Alberto is going to talk about next week, Jesus first presses us to consider one other thing. This week, we're talking about counting the cost of discipleship. Now, this topic and the passage we're going to read today is yet another area where we're in grave danger of plastering meaning, of subconsciously sort of appropriating this truth to fit within our culture instead of embracing it as is. Now, we're going to get to our pause moment now. This is an invitation, an opportunity for you to, number one, go gather a pen and a paper and your Bible. Number two, I want you to pray for one another right where you are, that God would open up your, your heart in a supernatural way to receive the word of God. And number three, read together our main passage, Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38 together. Ready? You can go pause and do that. Okay, if you're with me now, it's because you've just prayed with each other and read the scripture, but I think it's going to be helpful for us to look a few verses up from there for context of our scripture. Verses 31 and 32, <clears throat> and he, Jesus, 
began to teach them, his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Let's pause there. Now I emphasize the word must because suffering and death and for that matter, matter pandemics or economic crisis don't typically factor into our utopian, utopian vision for redemption and world history. But Jesus deeply desires to make his redemption plan clear, lest his disciples think it to be an accident somehow later. Jesus planned and predicted and went to perform the gospel through his own suffering, torture, dying, and raising. And that's just what he makes plain before our main passage. And how do his disciples respond to this admittedly jarring and morbid news about this plan? Well, verse 32 carries on. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. On the things of man. See, he's calling out Satan in Peter. And he could have said, Satan, you're, you're not, you are setting your mind on the things of Satan. But he says on the things of man. And there's something that we can learn from this. You see, Satan's highest goal is to tempt you to turn away from God's desires, to forfeit what God desires for you. And so he'll just as willingly lure you away from Jesus through your own lust and desire in human mindsets. And so here you have impetuous Peter. He takes Jesus aside to rebuke the Son of God. And Jesus makes clear that to oppose this plan of suffering and death is to oppose God. I think of my life. So often it's been my self-confidence that has been so gravely aligned with my own ignorance of the things of God. Just like Peter here. We like to chuckle at Peter when we read the Bible often, his impulsive nature. But you may not have known that Peter is responsible for co-writing this, the Gospel of Mark. And what if, what if the Holy Spirit told him to put this embarrassing stuff in Mark because he knew that we needed to hear this? I mean, how often do we want to take God aside and, in essence, rebuke God for our suffering and our circumstance, as if we know the plan and as if our prophetic vision is perfectly clear? You see, in this moment, Peter was reading his own presumptions and his own emotions more than he was reading the deep and eternal will of God plainly declared by Jesus here. Have you ever been there? I know you have, like I have. The Son of Man must 
suffer and die and rise. It's a must. It's not an accident to to be corrected by the Father. It's a must. It's not an accident. And nor is your suffering an accident today. And that's why you must count the cost. That's why verses 34 through 38 actually play out from verses 31 through 33. Because Jesus knows that to walk with Jesus, we will walk the path that Jesus walked with him. And so verse 34, calling the crowd with him, to the calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, if he forfeits his soul? For what can a man, verse 37, give in return for his soul? I love verse 37 in the International Children's Bible. One of my favorite uh, translations says, A person could never pay enough back for his soul. A small nugget for you. In this passage, anytime it says the word life or soul, they're, they're the same word in the Greek, which in essence means self or person or literal psyche. The, the, the person is the soul. And so think about verse 37 like this. If a person were at the cost of his own self, soul, let's say he were to acquire everything in the world. It's hard to imagine. I mean, we're talking Apple, Google, Exxon, Disney, everything. If he were to acquire everything, but it only cost him his life, his self, his very acquisition would be his execution. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Verse 38 keeps going. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes, speaking in third person, when I come, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is another hard word for Peter and for the rest of us who often easily become ashamed of the cross when it applies to our lives, our psyche, our bodies. And so let me share with you something that happened this week where I too, like the OG Peter here, had to really check my own presumptions. Last Friday, my wife and I were talking about John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. And I had the audacity to say to my wife, Elisa, I don't think it's that good. And she just paused and kindly looked at me and directly said, I just don't think you understand allegory. Shots fired. I kind of filed away that idea for later consideration, but I didn't really think I would have to consider it. Until three days later on Monday, I was preparing my sermon for this passage. And I, I was ahead in the game. At my routine, I was, I was way ahead and I already had, uh, through my studies, a lot of good things I'd, I was going to share. And at this point, I don't remember what those things were. Because as a matter of routine... What I do after my studies is before I run with the things I'm going to share, 
I listened to a few wiser, older men first. And on Tuesday morning, I was walking in my neighborhood, socially distanced, walking and listening to a sermon, a preaching of Mark 8, verses 34 through 38. And it wasn't even really a sermon. It was a preaching of a pastor. And at the end of the preaching, I was in my front yard on my knees, crying like a little baby. And again, I said it it wasn't even technically a sermon. Instead, John Piper, a pastor from Minnesota, he read the scripture and then he proceeded to recite an allegory that he wrote to illustrate our passage. The allegory entitled The Gallows and the Gift of Life deeply impacted me in my view of what Jesus is calling us to for such a time as this. And I want to read this allegory to you, or most of it. Now, as you may gather from the title, it may be a little intense for some kids towards the end, but I'll let you be the judge of that. And if it helps you, while I'm reading this story, this allegory, you may want to close your eyes and imagine what I'm sharing. The story that this story is painting. I'll start by paraphrasing paraphrasing the first part of the story. There was once a king's palace full of lustrous light. Light that not only brought life and vitality to its subjects, but also thrilling, overwhelming joy. But all too soon, the people of the kingdom ran away in rebellion from the palace because a root of suspicion began to spread like a virus. And they chose to fear the palace light as harmful, not believing it to be a source of joy and pleasure. They settled thousands of miles away from the palace, but the palace light was still so visible. Years later, the society had developed far from the palace with three unwritten rules. Number one, block the palace light at all costs as it's harmful and thought to bring unsafe exposure to those settling so far from the palace. Number two, rule number two, use artificial light to carry on with life and work. Number three, find other pleasures to fill your time and your focus. Then one of the settlers, a man named John, tells of some visitors from the palace to this faraway settlement. Story continues, I quote, A young man and his wife moved into town. They said they were sent from the king and that they had some, they had come to take cap- captive some of the rebel subjects and bring them to the palace to meet the king's son. They also said that the king's son had some business to tend to with some of us and that the charge was treason. To my mind, this was absolutely incredible. They had no weapons, no soldiers. I remember saying to them, and who is it that the king intends for you to take captive without any weapons or soldiers? They looked at me with the kind of earnestness and longing that I had never seen before. And they said, the warrants for the arrest are kept secret in the vault of the palace. But this much we've been told by the king, the people whose names are written there will come when the invitation is given. I laughed out loud. Invitation to get arrested? You're crazy. You might as well invite a sheep to the slaughter. Who would come? Why would anyone come? 
in a split second, I knew something was happening to me. Why did I ask that question? Why did I give the slightest indication that there, that I thought there might be an answer to the question? The king's messengers didn't miss it either. The young man said to me, I'll tell you why people will accept the invitation to be arrested for treason without soldiers and without weapons. He opened the king's book and quoted some words from the king's son. He said, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and climb the steps of the gallows and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Then he looked up and said, just as obvious as though it were written in the sky, the reason some of you will accept our invitation to be arrested for treason is that you would rather save your life by losing it than lose your life by saving it. I just stared at him in silence. I knew some of the stories of the king's son, fables I would have called them once, that he had come to one of our towns a long time ago and they received him like royalty on one Sunday and then hanged him on the gallows that Friday. Then he rose from the dead three days later and lives in a palace, the palace with the king and plans to come again and take over the kingdom someday. See, I knew all those fables. I just couldn't imagine what difference it would make even if I did believe they were true. But here was this young man, my neighbor, with no weapons and no soldiers, telling me, that the issue wasn't merely believing that these stories are true, but that I was under arrest for treason and that I must face the son of the king. And that was the end of my running from the king. My friends thought that I was absolutely crazy, but I knew I had heard the voice of truth. I invited this young couple over to my house and one by one, they began to turn off the artificial lights in my life. That night I went to bed in utter turmoil, frightened at the darkness around me, and almost as angry as ever at the king's light. The next morning I I woke up in the prison called Conviction. It had no bars and no locks, but I just couldn't leave. I had been there for maybe a week, when the son of the king himself knocked on the door of my room in the prison. When I opened the door, he simply said, follow me. He looked very serious, not angry, not smiling, just utterly intent. I followed him through the hall toward the door leading to the palace lawn. And when he got to the door, he turned and looked back at me and I shook my head. I said, no, I can't go there. Not now. He waited a moment longer and turned back into the prison and went down another hall and followed. I followed as closely as I could for not being sure where it was that he was going. And suddenly he turned through another door that I had never seen. It led out of the prison, not on the palace side nor on the dark side, but onto a dim path in between the two worlds. He turned at the door and said, come, this is a different way. A different way there? I thought, but he was already walking down the path and I followed him and my foot touched the path outside of the prison and I thought that I had taken the most decisive step of my life, but I was wrong. There was another one that I would soon have to take. 
The path was rough and narrow. The prince seemed to know every root and stone along the way. Now and then he looked back over his shoulder and I tried to read his face. No, no smile, no anger. We turned into a clearing and he stopped. My heart almost burst through my chest with fear. There in the middle of the clearing were gallows. It looked very old. There were steps leading up to a platform about eight feet off the ground. A trap door in the platform was rigged to a lever. Above the platform, there was a crossbeam and a coil and a rope and a noose. And on the platform was an executioner. I looked at the prince in disbelief. I followed you! Anger boiled up inside me and I wheeled around to run back to the path and it was gone, sealed over with vines and thorns. My eyes flashed around the clearing like a trapped animal. There were two paths, one blocked by the gallows and the other wide open, leading back to the darkness. And just before I bolted to that darkness, I, I heard a voice spoke my name. John, I will never be able to explain what it was like to hear the sound of my own name coming from the lips of the son of the king. John, he said again, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself and climb the steps of the gallows and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And by some miracle of miracles, by the power of his voice or something in his bearing, my anger was gone. And then the most decisive step of my life was taken. Still no smile on his face, no frown. But what I saw was the assurance of a promise. It was written on his face. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He lifted up his hands up the steps like an usher seating someone at a symphony. I ascended the old steps to the platform. My heart was beating so hard, I thought it would pound out of my chest. I felt everything I had ever known was ending. In the future, I closed my eyes and I whispered into your hands. I commit my life. The executioner pulled the lever. I felt the board scrape underneath my feet. My teeth clenched. Crack! The door gave way and I fell. Snap! Was it the whip of the rope or was it my neck? I don't remember. The next thing I know, I was being carried by some very strong arms. My neck was incredibly sore and I could feel the blood running down from my chest from the lacerations. And I opened my eyes and the first thing I saw was the scar on his neck. The next thing I noticed was the tears in his eyes, and the next thing I felt was the water. He was wading out into a river. It touched my feet first, then it came over my whole body, all the way up to my neck. I had never felt anything like this in my life. This was the purest touch I had ever known. The water gathered around my neck and took away all the pain. It came up over my face and hair and washed away all the fear and anger. And when I came up out of the water, he was smiling. He carried me up out of the river to the other side and put me down on the grass. 
And I realized that we were swallowed up in a light more brilliant than anything I'd ever seen, but it didn't hurt anymore. It was lovely to my eyes, and the warmth of the light on my skin was like the caress of a mother on a frightened child. The son of the king put his arm around my shoulders, and he said, Come, I want to show you the grounds before you have to go. Go? Must I go? I said. His smile was full of hope. Nobody stays, John, until they've crossed the river twice. You remember the young couple I sent to arrest you? There's been an uprising in your town. My father is calling them in. They'll be crossing the river again tonight. There's going to be a big celebration here, but first, I want you to go and replace them there in that town, John. I'll be with you. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, and I'd be very honored if you went for me. To which I responded with all my heart, Master, it's my pleasure. What a story. What a story. As is all, off, all too often the case, my wife was right and I was wrong. Allegory is way more powerful than I knew. What a beautiful picture of Jesus' sober invitation to you and to me. And so before I close, I have two quick takeaways to help us to count the cost. Number one, you cannot truly live without first dying. Let's be careful right now. We could easily sort of rebuke Jesus for his theology here. And so full of our understanding, kind of like our Amer American evangelical lens of what salvation means, we could say, hey, Jesus, we don't have to die to live. We just have to believe. But by grace through faith, Jesus, come on, get it together. But what if, what if this is what Jesus means by believing? Denying ourselves and counting the cost. What if that's what it means to truly believe? What if, what if the jolt of this pandemic that we're experiencing is used by God to help us to truly count the cost and consider what it means to truly believe? What if this crisis is a divine trigger that causes us to reevaluate the exchanges of life and soul that we're so easily accustomed to making? Now, everything in me as a pastor wants to leave you with three practical steps to help you to count the cost or map out a really simple and easy how-to but I can't do that. In the days to come, especially as you watch, watch the crisis, watch the world around you, watch what God's doing in the world, you need to read the Bible and pray and trust that the Holy Spirit will help you to practically consider the cost question as it applies to your life and, and your being and your living and your spending in recent weeks, people around the world have been asking, what if I lose everything? 
But Jesus here reminds us that the more dire question is, what if I gain everything and forfeit my soul, lose my soul? He's calling us to listen and obey. It's not, it's not easy, but it's simple. And it's not just foreign missionaries who have had to ask the question and been asked the question by Jesus to consider the cost of surrendering their own lives, even their blood, for Jesus. And that's just it. Specifically, what does the cost have to do with speaking up for Jesus and the gospel and defending the crucified Christ with our mouths? The cost of confession, as I'll call it, is what Jesus underlines ever so severely at the end of our passage. Even connecting our spoken confession to the final judgment of his glorious second coming. So my final takeaway is this, for you to process and pray through. You cannot follow him without proclaiming him. And you cannot proclaim him without persecution. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to count the cost. Lord, I remember when I was in the prison called conviction. After hearing your word and seeing a glimpse of how you were leading me, the pleasures of my life and my lustful youth no longer brought the satisfaction that they'd always promised. And yet until you led me to count the cost and have led me since then, I, I would have been stuck over and over. And Lord, you first traded your life for our redemption. You counted the cost first. You loved us first. And some of us praying right now, even in this moment, need to be reminded of that, that the great cost to you has come before what you ask of us and has helped us to really rest in this joy of truly believing. Others right now, though, are seeing that they haven't truly believed yet. They're not truly converted. And they're counting the cost even as we pray right now. Lord Jesus, direct them up the steps of the gallows to the cross where your love poured out. Help them to die and to truly live and to know what that means very clearly, plainly. Make them born again. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Amen. Now, if you prayed that with me just now, and if something totally new just happened in your heart, don't process it alone. We're here for you. And our next step in our, our, for our church, our next step of discipleship is Establish 101. We're going to be talking with you about that in the days to come and our plans for, uh, for our baptisms and so much more. But first, how about you join us just in a few minutes in our church lobby on Zoom? The Lord bless you and keep you.